Good morning, everybody. Welcome. Few and the Brave here for uh, preaching to the choir and the sex workers. So uh, thank you for being here uh, this morning. I'd like just to take a moment and uh, let's pray together and uh, commit our time asking that God would speak to us and uh, use this time in a productive way. So join with me in prayer, if you would. Lord God, we uh, are gathered here at Southeast Christian Church and uh, from many places, uh, geographically many places, but also many places in terms of our service uh, with you. And we would ask that uh, your spirit would speak into our lives. I pray that your spirit would speak into mine, even as I share with this uh, gathered group here this morning. Pray your blessing upon the works that you've called us to in Christ Jesus. And that we ask this in his name. Amen. Um, part of what I'd like to do this morning is, uh, in some ways, just give you a sense of, uh, of testimony, of journey, of uh, building the capacity of a, a ministry or, or an organization to respond to HIV and AIDS. And hopefully there will be some lessons along the way that you might learn about some of our approach. And, uh, and then hopefully we'll have some time for questions and answers. Hopefully... Uh, there are questions that I can answer, uh, so uh, we'll, we'll see how that goes. Um, my name is Ben Homan, and uh, 10 years, uh, had the privilege of leading a ministry called Food for the Hungry, and uh, so I'm now the past president of Food for the Hungry as of August 9th, and was called into really a fun adventure uh, serving with John Stott Ministries. I realized last night, uh, some of you might have been at the session last night, um, Folks may not have heard of John Stott Ministries. You can certainly go to the website. And uh, if you're really curious, if you go to the New York Times website and search who is John Stott, you'll get a great article by David Brooks. Uh, David Brooks is um, a self-proclaimed Jew uh, who encountered uh, and learned about John Stott as an evangelical leader, uh, the, the uh, the article refers to John Stott as uh, if evangelicals ever elected a pope, it would be John Stott. That was uh, mentioned in the article. Uh, longtime rector of All Souls Church in London, and some of you have read some of his classic books, uh, Basic Christianity and uh, The Cross of Christ, among about 50 other titles. Interestingly enough, the ministry began not to promote the works of John Stott, but to build up the capacity of the global church. And so, in 1969, John Stott reached a personal decision in his, his own spiritual life that he would assign all the royalties and all the honoraria that he would receive uh, to a trust to build up the local church globally. Uh, for an author who has sold in the millions, that was an incredible decision. Uh, and from that point in 1969, from All Souls Church, John Stott and his executive secretary began searching for scholars around the world to invest in into PhD programs. And they began scholarshiping one by one scholars from the global south and all over the world into PhD programs in biblical studies. We're now at 2010. We're now 334 PhDs later. Think about that. And the circulatory system, the skeletal structure of evangelical, biblical Christianity around the world, many of the people that are writing the Bible commentaries and leading institutions come back to John Stott. may or may not be a household name for you, but a privilege to represent him. For those of you who know of him or whatever, I will just ask that you would pray for him. He is 89 years old, will turn 90 uh, if he makes it through the winter, uh, April 27th of next year, uh, he's not in good health. He's uh, quite frail and uh, in an assisted living facility south of London. And uh, he's looking forward to going to glory, but um, not, in, uh, not in good shape uh, right now. And as we think about that, uh, the, uh, the basic outline that we'll cover today is uh, talking about poverty, 
as a context for a discussion about HIV and AIDS. And I want to make sure that we're talking contextually and understand when we talk about poverty and need that we share some common definitions. And then we're going to talk about problems we wrestle with and uh, hopefully give you some testimony to talk about partnership, preaching, the choir, and then sex workers, and we'll talk about responses. Let's talk for a moment about poverty. And uh, I recognize that in a group like this, we uh, have a lot of folks that have experienced um, missions and have experienced at least an understanding of physical poverty, but I want to expand our definition to something bigger. This is you know, some basic theology 101 in some ways, that the four key relationships um, that God established for man at creation, a relationship with God, with others, with creation, and with self. And uh, it was all good in the garden, amen? And then it went uh, crash. And uh, I'm not sure who served as the model for the, uh, the figure there, but um, any one of us, in a sense, could do that because all of us have experienced a brokenness in every kind of relationship in all of these areas. And poverty affects the whole person. And one of the things that Food for the Hungry uh, would begin to understand, and this is a, a process that we journeyed through as an organization, but that I also wanted to, to model as a, a leader in the organization that when we go into communities around the world, we don't go in as people who are rich. We actually go in as mutually poor. And that my brokenness might look different than another person's brokenness, but it is still broken. And I am as poor as the next person coming in. And that, I believe, is an important lesson even as we think about responding with HIV and AIDS and thinking about the implications of spiritual poverty, physical poverty, social poverty, and personal poverty. That has implications in terms of our attitude as we go in to deal with partnerships and uh, deal with things. One of the things, I love this slide, uh, it's borrowed. I came across it from uh, Food for the Hungry's country director in the, the Democratic Republic of Congo. But it talks about the extensiveness of poverty. Sometimes we can come up with simple, simplistic definitions of poverty. But when you think about the individual interior, the character issues, all of the things that cascade off of that, whether it's ethics, faith, mind, psychology, that are broken. There's also the individual exterior behavior, things that we might typically observe at the surface, the moral behavior, uh, works that people do, the brain, the physiology, uh, collective interior, culture, values, religion, worldview, anthropology. And then the collective exterior, the society, laws, institutions, technology, sociology. You realize the dauntingness of poverty when you realize the extensiveness of poverty and how it impacts literally every part of our society. So that would be part of my challenge to all of us in thinking through the definition of poverty is to be challenged by the extensiveness and also be humbled by it where you step back and you go, oh, my goodness, Lord, help us to deal with these extensive areas of poverty, including my own poverty and my own issues, my own brokenness in seeing and defining the world. And so my poverty is extensive. Uh, apathy, poor health, anger, pride, selfishness, broken relationships. And it gets messy because, you know what, all of us have this, and all of our poverty is connected to one another. And as we interact, all of our issues and junk, it just gets really complicated. And as people that are responding to something as complex as HIV and AIDS, maybe interacting with drug users, uh, sex workers, or others, if we don't understand the complexity of our own issues, then I think our response will be fraught with error. Poverty is messy and complex. And, and so this first band of issues uh, sort of deals with what might be the obvious issues within poverty, malnutrition, 
uh, intestinal parasites, AIDS, malaria, other things that maybe sit on the surface, but sitting behind that actually are many, many other areas of poverty as well. Um, lack of skills, no trust. Uh, it's an interesting piece in societies to see the lack of trust and what that implies and how that changes behavior. And if we do not understand that level of poverty, then we will uh, lack in our response. So part of this, uh, I would encourage you uh, to be considering what some of the issues for your poverty. Uh, my poverty, uh, this is a short seminar. We wouldn't be able to cover it. Uh, we are supposed to uh, finish at 10 to 10. So um, it's extensive, uh, I assure you. Augustine says, men go abroad to wonder at the height heights of mountains, at the huge waves of the sea, at the long courses of the rivers, at the vast compass of the ocean, at the circular motions of the stars, and they pass by themselves without wondering. And uh, there's a, a height to that, and there's also a depth to that. But let us not miss the, not only the, uh, the beauty of how God has created us, but then also the tragedy, uh, the complexity of being fallen creatures. A contemporary, we might quote here, is Bono, March 2010, Rolling Stone magazine, the greatest obstacles to people realizing their potential are of a spiritual nature. And Bono is certainly a very articulate person when it comes to poverty, debt reduction, but then also HIV and AIDS. And for him to recognize, at least publicly in a Rolling Stone magazine article, I'm encouraged by him drilling to this next level, that there are more aspects to this than simply the physical dimensions. So the challenge uh, for us as people responding to these incredible issues, uh, including HIV and AIDS, is to own and end poverty. What that, what that means to own it as something that it belongs to me. It's part of who I am. And then to try to discover the redemptive aspects that God would call us to in terms of the response. And so we'll talk here for a moment about partnership. And this is going to get to be some testimony here. Uh, I began traveling to some of the Food for the Hungry fields in 2001 and 2002. Um, I remember going to uh, uh, a place in Kenya uh, where the HIV-AIDS prevalence rate was 38% in that community, almost uh, 4 out of 10. Uh, that's individuals who were living with AIDS. That's not counting the people who had already passed away. The incredible cascading results of that uh, was uh, food production, uh, people unable to work in fields and produce and be productive, uh, people who were not able to teach, uh, people who were not able to care for their children. And uh, one of the things that I wrestled with as I came into contact with this was the fact that we as an organization, we could deal with food security issues. Obviously, the name Food for the Hungry would imply that we had a capacity to work with farmers and agricultural solutions and all of this. But four out of every ten uh, sick and dying of AIDS, I mean, that was a core issue. And I was looking at the capacity of our ministry, and we had, I won't say zero capacity, but we had a low capacity of being able to deal with HIV and AIDS. And how do you address that comprehensively as an organization? It was frightening, and it was daunting. Similar time, uh, there was a foundation executive uh, who I'd gotten to know over the number a number of years, and I was talking with him. And at one point, he said to me, "Ben, you know, we want to do something with helping you all with uh, HIV and AIDS and building your capacity." He said, "I've become convinced that if the church does not respond to this forcefully, 
that God will hold us accountable. He said, I've gone to the board of my foundation and I've, I've said, we need to repent that we have been so slow in responding and really began a beautiful partnership with that foundation as they generously funded different projects, recognizing the transparency of us as an organization going, you know what, we got some real issues here and we need to build. The other thing that this drove us towards uh, in that time period was uh, Food for the Hungry was connected with a great organization uh, called the Association of Evangelical Relief and Development Organizations. And is that Stan Dorr back there? There he is. Uh, Stan's a great guy, and Stan and I got to know each other in, um, uh, in Erdo. And you all have changed your name. You're now Accord. And, uh, and so a great organization that comprises about 70 or 80 different relief and development organizations doing work around the world. And so we had a meeting in Washington, D.C., where we were gathering folks. And we all said, you know what, we, we need help as a group of organizations, not as one organization or two, but a whole uh, slew of organizations, we need to build our capacity. And so we asked everybody, to, you know, who would like to elevate their capacity on HIV and AIDS? And I think we had probably about 15 or 16 organizations raise their hand. So we met and we said, what can we do to collaborate? And we found uh, uh, World Relief had... uh, somebody on their team that was just outstanding in developing curriculum and had thought through some of these things. And uh, Food for the Hungry had some financial project management capability. And different pieces came together. There was a media-based organization. There was an organization that uh, had a network of churches that they were connected with. But it began with this concept of my poverty. We began as organizations acknowledging what we lacked. And what we needed to build within our ministries and our organizations. And I'll tell you this, partnership, you can try to force it from the top or you can try to somehow wedge it together, but unless you really believe that you need each other in partnership, it's not going to work. And this is one of the things that I find, and I alluded to this last night, the sense of the need for repentance, uh, especially in the North American church, And I didn't necessarily unpack one of the major themes, in my opinion, is arrogance within the North American church, where we won't admit where we're deficits, where we're in deficit, and we believe that we have our act together. So we're going to send, because we have such a good strategy, we're going to send our youth group and drop them into the epicenter of the world's battle on HIV and AIDS. And they'll do fine. Sometimes we act arrogantly because we believe that we have the answers and the solutions. And I want to encourage you, especially as you think about poverty and HIV and AIDS, to think about not only what you, the assets that you have, the expertise that you have, but then also what you don't have. And where would that take you in terms of partnership and developing those relationships with other organizations, with other ministries? One of the things, too, and now that I'm, not with Food for the Hungry anymore. I'm dangerous because I'm not representing an organization. I don't have a dog in the fight. I love Food for the Hungry. But I can talk about the industry and I can talk about the face-off between nonprofit organizations and churches. And there has been, been this thing like, well, will the churches cooperate with nonprofit organizations and relief ministries? Or are the churches going to figure this out together? Folks, we've got to do this together. Let's look at the the size of the challenge. Let's look at poverty. Let's look at HIV and AIDS. And if that doesn't put us on our knees going, God, help us, and drive us towards partnership, then, I mean, what does it take? And so, uh, you know, I want to stand here and and say to you folks, you know, whether you're with a ministry, whether you're in college or whatever, if, if you hear a sense of a ministry or a church doing this on their own, it's at least got to put a yellow or red flag on on this. This is big enough. This was also um, uh, brought home to me, interestingly enough, in a visit to Seattle to the Gates Foundation. That's that little, um, uh, you know, $30 to $40 billion uh, ministry that has a high interest, actually, in health issues. And uh, there were... There were about 10 of us that were visiting at the time, 
and we met with the senior leadership, uh, Bill Gates' father and the senior program officers at the Gates Foundation. And they made a presentation to us as their visitors, and they said, we are so small. We do not measure our size on our asset base, our financial asset base. We are measuring ourselves against the problem that we're addressing. And so that has driven us to view our size as microscopic. And so we want to do things as the Gates Foundation to influence and to shape and to bring partnerships to leverage whatever investment we would make in HIV and AIDS and other health issues. And I, I was struck there that, you know, if the Gates Foundation views themselves as small and tiny, then do we puff ourselves up as an evangelical community or as a missions community and triumphantly pronounce we're giving X amount or doing X amount? I believe measuring ourselves against the size of the problem will lead us towards partnership. Uh, I do want to talk about some practical things that are being done. I um, will walk through a few slides here with a, um, uh, a tribute and thank, uh, thanks to uh, a person on the Food for the Hungry staff, Kim Buttonow, who's a master's in public health. And to start this, um, I'd like to do a short video, and this is where hopefully technology will serve us well here. Some of them are chronically ill. They didn't get 
But that day to God, things from that time up to now, they only miss two who have passed away. The rest, they are alive and well. The first group meeting, we have to transport each one of them from their own home. But thanks be to God, now they can walk by themselves to this side to have to run their own meeting. I love them. And because of this group, I am even feeling so comfortable and feel that I am somebody still. I'm not tired. So she said, the group is our hope, and this group is our life and life. In a land where tribal conflict is the status quo, here in the positive living group, love is overcoming the divide. In this group, there's nothing like tribal conflict. All the community tribes that are existing in Mexico, they have the common goal and the common problem. So, they are just seeing how to solve this common problem. Not their personal business. We have the strength of togetherness. When we are together, the stigma is not there. Food for the Hungry is seeking to take this hope to other communities in Kenya, where AIDS victims are suffering and dying alone. Let them come for support instead of dying alone. There are so many. You are not the only one. So, the moment you use the members of this group to reach out to others, we will try to form their own support group at their own locality. That's our greatest aim. Whether through song, drama, pictures, or personal testimony, the message of AIDS prevention and treatment is spreading rapidly through this region of Kenya, thanks to people like Clara and the various groups Food for the Hungry has mobilized. To me, this is a quality. It's not a work. It's a quality because it's really helping the needy and helping the poor. The act of giving service to my community comes from my heart. So I'm doing this not as a job, neither as a work, but as a service to, to, to help others. So, <clears throat> I showed you that video, and uh, we're talking about the power of partnership. Uh, the way that came together in Marsabit, Kenya, is a partnership uh, with the Anglican Church in uh, northern Kenya uh, that gave us access and a network and infrastructure. Um, there was a partnership, actually, with Jars of Clay and Bloodwater Mission that helped to fund uh, part of uh, that and a partnership with at least two other community-based organizations in Marsabit. And, again, part of our journey at Food for the Hungry was to figure out how do you build this capacity within an organization that at one point did not have that capacity but that needed to take some initial steps. We would never have gotten to this place without partnership with other organizations connecting here in the relief and development world and United States, and then also with local organizations in Kenya. And so my challenge partly to you all is to, to point you in the direction of partnership, point you in the direction of finding out how you can connect with one another. Also, <clears throat> uh, Kim Buttonow at Food for the Hungry, Tom Davis at Food for the Hungry, uh, those are names that if you want to learn about the details of what we call the care group model, they are fantastic resources for what was pictorialized in the video, the care group model setting up community-based care groups so that the leveraging power of the community comes to bear on uh, the, uh, the, the people that are struggling with HIV and AIDS. If uh, you're going in to be the, uh, the, the jet fighter pilot, to be the hero, the, the, the white knight, whatever you want to call it. Um, you know, I don't want to burst your bubble, but <clears throat> you can only go so far. And you've got to trust and acknowledge that God has gone ahead of you and provided for you a community that is actually ready to respond. Uh, they may need some 
help and guidance along the way, but uh, they have enormous resources. And so we have uh, connected with volunteers uh, locally. It's quite interesting. Not, not on the Food for the Hungry staff, not paid, but locally based volunteers who are eager because they have time on their hands to be able to help people in their community. An example in Mozambique where we've used the care group model. And uh, two orphaned girls, uh, we're helping them with school, uh, school in Mozambique. You see some of the images. Many of you have uh, been to Africa and other places that have been stricken by this. So they're a support group. Uh, this was an initiative uh, that was begun by a local group. We didn't have to orchestrate this but uh, the community responded and uh, we were excited to be able to see the Tupendane Community Dispensary. Again, uh, two volunteers in Zawai, Ethiopia, wouldn't be able to do this without volunteers on the ground. And when you think about HIV AIDS, you don't necessarily immediately think about income generation as a need. Uh, a few slides ago, there was a field that the proceeds from that field were being used to scholarship girls to school. Uh, there are other things that need to be done for income generation to care for some of the needs in the group, and a small business loan was uh, something that allowed this woman uh, to send her girls to school and to help her medical costs. So you have to think comprehensively, and that's why it's unlikely that any one organization or one church is going to have all the resources to begin putting together the strategy. So uh, bringing hope to the hopeless, uh, it was an expensive project um, with the help of some uh, private investors and um, generous donors. Uh, we were able to begin the program. I'll tell you this, uh, the donor story behind this was a young couple in their 20s uh, in ministry who received an inheritance. And uh, they approached me and said, you know, could we help with HIV and AIDS? That's what God has put on our hearts. And so we scrambled. I said, well, we don't have capacity to do this. We put together a proposal. It was about a $1.3 million proposal and uh, shared that with the couple. And they said, Ben, would it be okay if we gave $2.5 million? Okay, we'll, we'll allow that. Um, <clears throat> we would not, as an organization, we didn't have the margin to do that. God provided, uh, and that allowed us to begin building our capacity. And then that gave us the ability to go to PEPFAR, the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, uh, begun during the Bush administration. And collectively, uh, I mentioned Erdo earlier, those organizations, as we brought our resources together, uh, put a, a couple of key initial proposals together. We would never have been able to do this on our own. And uh, God worked in amazing ways, allowed us to work in multiple countries, home-based care and counseling, uh, support for orphans and vulnerable children, etc. cetera. Uh, the horizontal commonalities, uh, coordinated response among churches. Again, do you believe you need partnership? Um, that's extremely important. The care group model for health promotion and outreach, <clears throat> the extensive use of volunteers, identification and cultivation of local community-based partners, use of participatory educational methodologies. You saw the dramas and the songs. Uh, so key to multiplying the impact of what's done. It's contextualized because you have local, local volunteers and then stigma reduction. <clears throat> Project objectives, uh, you see them there, increased commitments to abstinence before marriage, increasing faithfulness in marriage, long-term committed relationships, increased services to HIV pregnant women and uh, their transmission to children is um, pregnant women sometimes transmit this to their kids. <clears throat> and the provision of 
high-quality home-based care to those infected and affected and reducing sexual exploitation and abuse. So uh, you know, part of this, what Food for the Hungry brought to the table as we were learning from other organizations was project management, establishing objectives and measurables. And those kinds of things are uh, important if you're representing a church or representing an organization that's just starting to be able to have that capacity to be able to do that. And if you don't have the capacity, go out and find it through a partnership. I would encourage you. Components of home-based care, and a lot of this is driven by volunteers, the home visiting, um, nutrition and hygiene education, education on safe sex practices, social, spiritual, and physical support, and so forth. Uh, OVCs, Orphans and Vulnerable Children, we talk in acronyms uh, uh, very much. Excuse me. Home visiting by trained volunteers, again, driving this to the local level because whether you're Food for the Hungry or a church, you've got to be thinking about the community after you leave. You have to have an exit plan. And does the community learn and have the capacity to be able to deliver what you're teaching them? And uh, if you're not thinking about what happens after you leave, it's a, uh, a problem for sure. And, uh, again, talking about um, the transmission of AIDS to, uh, to children. I'm gonna, I need to go, uh, go on here. We we'll, don't need to talk about that. We're going to just go on. Uh, this is a curriculum. It's actually available for sale in Africa and some of the Christian bookstores in Kenya, uh, but the Choose Life curriculum. We would not have been able to do this without uh, Debbie Dortzbach at uh, World Relief, really a gifted developer of curriculum. And, uh, and then we were able to adapt it for the situation in Kenya. Uh, the most important thing we offer to the community is not the skills we have or the interventions we offer or even the money for school fees. The most important thing we offer is hope. And that's from one of our volunteers in Kenya. And don't underestimate the impact of encouragement and blessing that you'll bring to the community as well. Um, We are running out of time, and I want to just talk for a moment about... um, the impact of worldview. This is one of these things that we don't understand sometimes when we go into the community, when we try to identify the barriers that we're dealing with. And uh, I just have a quick slide here to describe to you the impact of things because we'll have comments um, saying, well, you know, that's very interesting how HIV AIDS is transmitted in the West. Here in Africa, it's from witches that bite people at night, and we know that's how it's transmitted. And this, uh, if you're avoiding dealing with the worldview issues, uh, the belief in the spirit world, uh, the impact of curses. Uh, uh, I was in Bolivia uh, last year, and uh, the belief that uh, twins were a curse upon uh, a family, a belief that multiple births identified you with the animal world, and so if you're at the animal level giving birth to more than one child, there's something cursed about your family. And so there, there are attitudes and belief systems that sit underneath the behavior that you observe. And if you miss that and don't have a cue to it, it's going to limit your ability to respond. Uh, let me talk for a moment uh, about the uh, preaching to the choir and the, and the sex workers. Uh, the choir, in my mind, as I thought through the title of this, uh, is the perhaps the churches here in North America, uh, people on your mission teams that need to have a sense of who they are and who they are not, going back to the sense of shared poverty, my poverty, and also a sense of uh, do they really believe in the power of partnership and affiliating with others and learning from those examples. And, and preaching that message is, I believe, quite, quite key. I believe also uh, in preaching the gospel to myself, 
and being reminded about God's grace going into a situation like this. I need to hear the message of the gospel and the message of grace, even as I'm, I'm sharing it with others. I need to have the spiritual reservoir and resources to be able to respond. And I think we miss that sometimes, especially in a group like this where we have tremendous, wonderful hearts to reach the world. God bless you for that, that heart and that desire. But if you neglect your own need to hear uh, the grace of God every day, to understand his love for you right where you are in the midst of your own poverty, then you won't last and you won't be sustained in, in ministry. And I think one of the things I've, I've learned in, in ministry, as I sometimes will in my flesh minister out of my emptiness, I need to hear the gospel and be reminded of it every single day. And don't neglect, as you think about the world, don't neglect the care of your own soul in responding to this. And I think as we go into something as serious as dealing with poverty around the world and HIV and AIDS, if we miss this and just think externally about preaching the gospel to those out there, then uh, we've, we've robbed ourselves of the power to be able to respond. Um, this problems we wrestle with, um, I've touched on some of them. One of the problems I think we wrestle with is the inadequacy that we have to, to preach. And many of us, I see we have some internationals uh, folks here, which is fabulous. But for those of us from North America, understand how limited your capacity is to, to communicate and preach cross-culturally. Uh, God's word is true. It's true everywhere. But understand that it needs to be contextualized and localized. And understand that the, real, the best preachers in Uganda will be Ugandan. And, and so forth. That you need to be equipping and enabling the individuals from the local community to deliver the messages not just the triumphalism of coming in from the outside. And I tell you, that is one of the things that I'm now um, experiencing with John Stott Ministries. And people understand John Stott, wow, tremendous scholar, tremendous preacher. Um, Can I go, I'll have a North American pastor say, can can I go and help train others to, to preach? I remember typing a response in an email just a couple weeks ago just saying, well, maybe, but actually we're hoping that we have a non-white face doing the training to be able to equip and build up the church locally. So this idea of preaching to the choir, preaching to the sex workers, sometimes we need to be reminded that the best person to preach to the sex workers is someone who used to be a sex worker. And whatever that context is that we're working in to recognize, you know, perhaps I'm not the messenger. And do we have the humility to be able to step back and not be uh, the the white knight on the the noble steed riding into the village uh, and delivering the message? And that takes a dose of humility for us as North Americans who love uh, oftentimes being the answers to everybody's problems, that we would act in humility in our response to that. Uh, there are other things that we could talk about. Um, I think we are uh, at the 10-minute, uh, 10 to 10, and so we're officially supposed to, to wrap up. We started a little bit late. I can't guarantee that I have answers to your questions, but let's let's take about three to five minutes, and let me just find out what questions you have. If you need to leave, uh, feel free to slip out, but I'll try to take just find out if there are questions that you may have. Yes, sir. Yeah, um, this is the first time I'm understanding poverty in a holistic way. Uh, I appreciate what you've done, uh, but I, is it possible for you to? Talk a little bit about this idea of developing world, underdeveloped world, uh, versus, you know, uh, in the context of uh, poverty. I mean, what do we mean by develop? 
Is it technologically? Is it spiritually? Is it in terms of recent growth? Mm. How do you measure it? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And, and certainly um, the... Uh, the terminology that we use is sometimes problematic as, uh, you know, the uh, developed world or the, the developing world. And, uh, and, you know, the popular definitions of that are often uh, measured on a gross national product and, and all of that. And so that, that's an inadequate explanation. I'll, I will tell you that you need to have some level of measurement to understand what you're talking about. Let me tell you about uh, five measurements that Food for the Hungry used just to get a sense of where needs are. And the uh, and this is not a magic uh, metric solution, but we looked at uh, access to clean water as a as a way of understanding where where is a community or, or where even is a nation. We would use United Nations statistics on access to clean water. We would also use uh, UN statistics on uh, access to primary education for girls. Uh, and oftentimes, as many of you know, um, girls are deprioritized uh, in their education. So it was an indicator. So where is a country or, or, or nation on that? And it objectifies it using UN uh, data. Uh, the third area... Uh, was uh, child mortality under the age of five. So you get a, a clear indication of um, where things are. So if you look at the statistics, for instance, in Africa on uh, child mortality under the age of five, one of the countries that is spiked is the Democratic Republic of Congo. Uh, because, and you see the impact, actually it spikes almost all of the metrics, access to clean water, uh, primary education for girls. Uh, the impact of conflict is a magnifi- magnification. And then uh, as we were dealing with physical and spiritual hungers, we also wanted to at least get a measurement from the U.S. Center of World Missions on uh, per capita uh, churches uh, to the population and then also the professing Christians. Uh, there's no magic necessarily that, that those five things are uh, the best indicators, but uh, we found them helpful just to be able to compare apples to apples. And there are problems with it because sometimes data collection in one part of the world is better than others. And the United Nations often aggregates it at a national level and doesn't give you always the very specific. But it's something to be able to, to look at. Other questions? Yes, back there. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question about partnership. And you have some organizations that have a very intentional, non-spiritual identity and are very hesitant to, uh, to, uh, to partner. There are a couple of things. There's levels of partnership. And if you're going to have a, um, an intricate, uh, interwoven operational partnership, you need to have you know, birds of a feather flocking together. Otherwise, it's just not, uh, not going to work. The partnership will ultimately fall apart. So part of the criteria for partnership is you need to be on the same page uh, with, uh, with operating. So that's one piece of that. The other piece is that there are levels of partnership in terms of attending UN meetings or attending Red Cross uh, organizational meetings or going to the embassy and finding out, you know, talking with people, getting information. And what Food for the Hungry has done in um, uh, the Aceh province in Indonesia, for instance, uh, when we were responding to the tsunami, an area under Sharia law uh, was, you know, morning and evening we were at the UN meetings and the coordination with the Indonesian government. And so a sense of partnership and also working to understand where some organizations are doing their work. And so sometimes it's a topographical mapping kind of partnership World Relief has this covered. World Vision has this covered. Compassion has this covered. Well, there's a niche here for where 
a gap. So I would, I would just cascade it into different levels of partnership, but don't try to force um, something because other, otherwise it will fall apart. There are definite organizations uh, that will not work with Christian organizations. Uh, controversial in the HIV-AIDS arena is the uh, message of abstinence, for instance. And, uh, and so there are those issues. Uh, Tom Davis, who I mentioned to you, went to a world H, uh, HIV and AIDS uh, meeting in Canada a few years ago and was you know, heckled by individuals on his message of abstinence. And that will happen. Maybe uh, we're uh, almost to the top of the hour. One more question. Maybe we'll try. It oh, depends on how long. Okay, go ahead. Well, uh, the question is how, uh, how effective is, is it to uh, hand out a curriculum on HIV, HIV and AIDS versus handing out condoms. Uh, first of all, you, look at, you need to look at the education in a very comprehensive way. Just handing out a booklet is not adequate either. It's a, it's a curriculum. It's organizing youth into um, their own care group and so that the peers – their peers are going through the curriculum together as well and that they have mentors in the community that are walking them through that curriculum. So the curriculum itself, that's one piece, but it needs to be carried by the community and the connectedness not only of mentors but then peers. There's also an element of the community groups. Let's, let's say that churches – it's acknowledged that churches are a community group in many of these communities. Is the pastor willing to talk about HIV and AIDS from the pulpit and reduce the level of stigma? Um, will he allow the children of the community, as I've seen in, in uh, Ugandan churches and Ethiopian churches, will he allow the youth group to come in to sing a song about HIV and AIDS prevention? Or is it so foreboding so you're dealing – you've got to work on multiple levels in terms of the curriculum and the permission of uh, community things. Uh, condoms, you know, I, I, I haven't seen this, but I've certain, certainly uh, heard stories actually about confusion in communities. There's actually a youth group, I think, from the United States who brought balloons to a community as a, as a, you know, fun thing to do with the kids, and they thought they were condoms. Uh, so uh, it's got to – whatever you do has to be a comprehensive educational experience that uses the power of the community and the power of partnership there. There is one, one question here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, pastoral care for those who are dying. And feel free to leave. It's, we're now 10 minutes over. Um, Maybe why don't we talk about that afterwards. God bless you all. Take care.